Okay, this week's laboratory will be covering pregnancy and we'll be doing a couple things in lab. Um, first, we'll be examining pregnant reproductive tracts to get a good overview of um, the different portions of the placenta. And we will also be performing rectal palpation for pregnancy detection in cattle. So today, uh, when you get your pregnant tracts, they're from a cow, um, and we'll have to stage um, the fetus that's present within the placenta. And so the first thing I want to go over is a timeline uh, of embryonic development in the calf. Um, so if we look at this timeline, of course, we begin with the uh, two-cell embryo here um, about one day after fertilization. Um, we see we reached the blastocyst stage at about day seven. Uh, and then gastrulation begins by day 13. Um, it's also important to note that out here at, by day 21, we see we have a beating heart. The lungs, liver, and pancreas have begun to develop from the foregut. We've got the kidney and reproductive tract development beginning. Um, so the point of this is that by the time we know this female's in female is pregnant, right? She would return to estrus around day 21 if she was not pregnant. So by the time we can detect if she will return to estrus or not, we already have a fetus with a beating heart and many, many of the, the internal organs have already developed. You see at day 23, the lantois has become well-developed. Day 26, four, four limb buds appear for the front legs. 27, the hind limb buds appear for the back legs. Um, by day 30 of gestation, uh, remember the uh, limb buds change to legs and toes. Um, the tail grows. The eyes and nostrils become uh, apparent. Um, by day 32, we have the pregnant horn filled to the tip with uh, membranes. The lantoic sac is beginning to fill the uh, chorionic sac. Um, by day uh, 36, the lantoic sac extends the full length of the chorionic sac, forming the chorioalantois. Um, attachment begins around day 38. And then these later stages are the, the characteristics we're going to need to look for in lab today, um, as your tracks are, are probably fairly advanced. Um, first, at day 70, the bones begin to ossify. So once you've isolated your uh, fetus, you may want to uh, dissect a, a limb uh, to determine if, if it's still more cartilage in nature or if the the bones have begun to ossify to start to help you uh, stage your fetus. Uh, we've got uh, hair follicles that appear at day 90. So this could be a, a few hair follicles around the, uh, uh, anywhere uh, on the head uh, particularly. Um, horn pits start to show up at day 100. Get tooth development at day 110. And by day 150, we'd see hair, not just hair follicles, but hair around the eye and the muzzle region. And this 
especially on the muzzle region, might be just a few hairs, but as long as you some have hair development, then you're probably beyond day 150. And then we get out here a lot further, about day 230, where the hair covers the uh, uh, entire body. And then gestation in the cow is going to be somewhere around 280 to 285, uh, somewhere in there. So you can utilize these uh, characteristics to hopefully help you stage uh, the fetus that, that you have today. And if we think about embryonic development and placental development, um, I wanted to point out this picture from the pig. Uh, similar things are happening in the cow as well. But there's just before implantation and placenta development, there's a tremendous amount of growth uh, that the embryo undergoes. You can see here it goes from a, a spherical embryo to more of an oval type of shape to what we would consider tubular, and then finally into this, it looks like an elongated filamentous thread where really the embryo is kind of in, in this portion, and then the, these are going to be each of the ends of the eventual uh, placenta that, that is formed. And there's a tremendous amount of growth here. We go from day, on day 10 from 3 to 5 millimeters uh, to just before day 12 at 141 uh, millimeters. And, and I forget what the exact number is, but this is uh, so many millimeters per hour. And in fact, this is the highest growth rate uh, an individual will have during their entire lifespan, Okay, is in this critical day 10 to 12, 10 to 14 uh, stage of days of gestation. So a tremendous amount of growth and change occurs to the embryo prior to implantation and placental formation. And there's a couple of ways to characterize the type of placenta that a species might have. Um, in this example, I'm not really worried about you remembering the names. We'll go over these in lecture as well. But um, we could base uh, placenta formation on how many layers separate the maternal and fetal blood supply. So we could go from a, a placental type called epithelial corial, where there's somewhere around uh, seven different layers that separate the maternal and fetal blood supply, so quite a few layers, down to the hemoendothelial, where really we have a fetal blood vessel that is immersed within the maternal uh, blood. So really only this one layer, the the outer layer of the blood vessel separates the maternal and fetal blood supply. And this can uh, dictate what types of things can or cannot cross the placenta, how many layers separate the two. But maybe the, the, the one that uh, is a little bit more commonly used is uh, this type of classification, where we're looking at how are villi distributed across the surface of the chorion uh, of the placenta. And villi are finger-like projections that extend off the surface uh, of the chorion of the placenta, and they're going to interact with the inner lining of the, of the uterus to, to um, form the connection between the placenta and the maternal side, the uterus. The first one we have shown here is called a diffuse type of placentation. Here the villi are 
evenly spread across the surface of the chorion. So it kind of gives a velvet, velvety-like appearance across the surface of the, the chorion. Um, and this type of placentation you're going to find in the pig, uh, the horse, and the lemur would be another example of a diffuse type of placentation. Next up is cotyledonary. The villi are distributed in these rosette or circular structures um, uh, on the surface of the uh, chorion. So rather than being evenly spread across, they're really congregated in these little rosette structures. Um, and what species would exhibit a cotyledonary type of placenta? Well, the cow we'll see today, the ewe, deer, uh, ruminants um, would be examples of that type of placentation. Um, next is called zonary, where the villi are distributed in a band-like appearance, kind of across the middle uh, of the chorion. And this type of placentation we would find in, in the uh, dogs or cats. And then the last type we want to mention is called discoid. And species with discoid type of placentation could either have one or two um, areas where the villi are distributed in this uh, uh, disc-like area. Um, humans have one disc, whereas rodents have two discs that interact with uh, the uterine line. And I want to begin to address the different types, uh, parts of the placenta that we might find. So uh, if we look at uh, fetal membranes or, or sacs within the placenta, um, we, we can describe those here. We have the yolk sac. The yolk sac is an early uh, intradermal layer, uh, but it, it's really vestigial in nature. What does that mean? Well, this yolk sac is going to play a really influential role early in development, early in gestation, but then it's eventually going to uh, disappear, and other portions of the placenta will become important. Um, the amnion. The amnion is a cavitation from the inner cell mass, and it is really that the sac that is immediately surrounding uh, the fetus. So the fetus is floating within this fluid-filled uh, cavity called the amnion. Next, we have the lantois. It comes from a diverticulum of the hindgut. Uh, blood vessels that connect the fetal with placental circulation would be located here, and the lantois is going to continue to grow until uh, it fuses with the outermost layer called the chorion to form the choriolantois. And as mentioned, the outer layer is the chorion. This would be uh, uh, closest to the uterus. Right? It comes from the trophoblastic capsule of the blastocyst stage embryo. It's going to enclose the embryo and all other fetal membranes. The amnion and the lantois are going to be inside the chorion. And this is going to be the layer that becomes intimately associated with the inner lining of the uterus that forms that placental attachment. Also need to mention the umbilical cord. Uh, the amnion wraps around the yolk uh, stock, um, forming the umbilical cord. And the umbilical cord encloses the allantoic vesicles, and it's 
vessels, excuse me, and it uh, acts as the vascular link between the mother uh, and the fetus. Okay, so just a quick overview of the different portions of the placenta. And if we look a little bit about early in development and the beginning of placenta formation, uh, we can see a couple of things here. Here in the dark portion in these pictures is the embryo itself developing fetus. Uh, we've got uh, the yolk sac, which is important to this early fetus. You can see uh, the yolk sac starts out as a primary organ. Over time, it's going to get smaller and smaller, smaller and smaller until it eventually uh, disappears and is no longer used. We can see these wing-like appendages that start to form around uh, the embryo here. Uh, those continue to grow towards one another, getting closer and closer until eventually they fuse. And when they fuse, that, that forms the amniotic sac. So the sac that immediately surrounds the fetus itself or embryo. Um, we also see at this point now the allantoise, that diverticulum of the hindgut is starting to appear as the yolk sac is disappearing. Um, and then whenever we mention the term, uh, so when we say amnion, allantoise, or chorion, that's really the membrane, and the sac or fluid-filled area within those would be, be called the sac. So, so the amnion is the membrane, fluid inside the amniotic sac, allantoise is the membrane inside the allantoic sac, chorion the outside, and inside that would be the, the chorionic sac. And I just wanted to give a, a look at a little bit more developed uh, placenta. So here we have the cow at 20 days and at 30 days of gestation. You can see the, the fetus is fairly distinctive by this time. Uh, we've got, the again, the amnion surrounding the fetus. The yolk sac is all but gone. Uh, we've got the allantoise that has grown considerably from the last diagram. And then the chorion is that outermost uh, layer that we would find. And as we progress from day 20 to 30 of gestation, you can see uh, that the yolk sac is gone, the amnions uh, sort of still surrounding the fetus, and the allantoise has really filled the area of the chorion. Um, when these membranes come into the contact, the allantoise and chorion, uh, they will fuse together and form the chorioallantoise. They're very near to the point where they would fuse here already at 30, uh, around 30 days of gestation. They're getting close. If we look at uh, the sow at around 20 days of gestation, remember in the cow, gestation is 280 to 285, but in the sow, it's only going to be 114 days, so things progress along a little more quickly. Um, when we look at the sow at this point, we see that the allantois has nearly filled the chorion, and the two layers would start to fuse together to form the chorioallantoids. And what you really probably want to focus on when you're dissecting your pregnant tracts 
in lab is this diagram. Provides a nice uh, overview. Um, we've got our uh, the innermost layer is the uh, amnion that directly surrounds the fetus in amniotic sac. Outside of that, we see the the allantois. You can see it's it's mostly filled up the chorion, which is the outermost layer. So if you wanted to really find pure chorionic sac, you really would only be able to do that on the ends here and the ends here. And then these two layers, the allantois and chorion, they fuse together to form the chorioallantois. And you have a nice cross-section of the fetus to kind of give you a, a good overview uh, as well of what we might see. We also can see on the, the surface of the chorion are uh, cotyledons. Remember, a cow was a cotyledonary type of placentation. And when we consider uh, the cotyledon on the placental side interacts with the chorion, or excuse me, with the caruncle that is present on the maternal side, the uterine side. Way back when we first looked at female reproductive tracts, that were pregnant, we could see these caruncles uh, on the surface of the uterus. Um, and together, those two would be would form what's called a placentome, the interact, interacting parts where they have the maternal caruncle and the fetal cotyledon. And you can see that these villi that are sticking off the surface of the cotyledon can enter into these holes or receptacles that are present within the maternal caruncle, the uterine caruncle, and that is going to provide your attachment. So uh, I oftentimes consider a, the placenta um, and the, the placenta interactions here as kind of a Velcro attachment. Uh, so we need something that's going to be solid and hold the uh, placenta in place during gestation, allow the fetus to develop. But then we also have to, after we expel the fetus, we're going to expel the placenta, uh, <coughs> excuse me, during parturition. Um, so we need to be able to release uh, uh, the placenta. So it's kind of a transient organ. When it's in there, it needs to be held solid, but eventually we need to uh, expel the placenta. Um, so these villi enter the uh, receptacles in the carbuncle. And they swell up. So um, when they swell up, they fill the area of that receptacle in the caruncle. And that's what's going to provide your solid attachment, your Velcro attachment, if you will. Um, and then uh, when parturition occurs, those villi will shrink. Uh, and that will allow them to release from these receptacles. Uh, and then the pl placenta can be um, expelled. Sometimes what happens uh, is that those villi don't shrink. And this is what would happen in the case of a retained placenta. Right? Um, so if uh, this situation occurs, then that's something that you're, you're really going to have to deal with. So the, the cow has given birth to the calf already, but the placenta has not been expelled um, shortly after the calf has been born, um, so it's something you would want to deal with. Now, uh, 
most of the time we need to treat with something that could reduce the swelling. So uh, to allow these villi to be released from uh, the receptacles and the carbuncle. And uh, one, way, one thing we could use is antibiotics to help uh, reduce the swelling there. And then we have to remember that when this is happening, the, the cow has already undergone all of her contractions to get the, the fetus uh, uh, expelled uh, and to try to expel the placenta. So um, she's not going to have those strong uterine contractions anymore. So we'd have to do, give her something to help promote those. So oxytocin would be a good example of a compound to, to cause uterine contractions to then expel the placenta uh, long after parturition has already happened. Now, it's not always that easy, right? Uh, sometimes that type of uh, thing, system won't work, and we have to maybe mechanically go in and remove the uh, placenta. And of course, that could cause more damage and it, it would be more likely that that, that cow would not uh, return to estrus and be able to, to uh, produce progeny again, although um, it, it, still could, it still could happen. But it's something that you uh, may have to deal with when it's uh, that, that serious uh, of a type of situation where you may have to actually mechanically uh, remove the placenta. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention here is the ends of the placenta here are called the necrotic tips. And it's not such an issue in uh, the cow, but in the pig, um, the necrotic tips are kind of a marker of, of the length of the placenta. So when embryos migrate through the uterus, they set up shop uh, and are going to develop into the placental units within a given length of the uterus. And what can happen sometimes is those embryos develop too closely together or we have too many fetuses within the entire space that's available uh, to the uterus. And basically if we look at two placental units and if, if these necrotic tips cross over at all, then that typically means that one of those fetuses is, is probably going to lose. Um, so uh, one of those fetuses will take up most of the nutrients, um, uh, will basically utilize the nutrients that the other fetus needs, um, and uh, usually that uh, other fetus will be lost. Uh, how are they lost? Well, fetuses can be reabsorbed by the uterus. Um, so at parturition, we might find remnants of a fetus um, or partially reabsorbed fetus, and we would call that a, a mummified fetus or mummy. Um, those are commonly found uh, in pigs. Or if it happens early enough, then uh, the uterus could completely reabsorb uh, the fetus. But these necrotic tips, uh, we don't want them really to cross over very far with one another uh, in a polytocus species or a litter-bearing species. The other thing to remember is uh, when we talk about, um, you know, the, the woman needs to get to the hospital because her water broke and um, uh, parturition is, is uh, soon to follow. Um, we have always seen, the, seen movies and things like that. Oh, the woman's water broke. We've got to get to the hospital. Well, um, there's really two 
water sacks, if you will. The first would be the Coriolantois, obviously, the most the outermost portion of the placenta. Uh, and then the next would be the, the amnion. And when the, the water breaks um, from the placenta, um, really, eventually, the fetus is going to become hypoxic, right? It's going to be starving for oxygen. So that fetus has a limited amount of time to, to, be, to, to be expelled from the, from the uh, uterus. And if that doesn't happen quickly enough, then that's when we would get uh, a stillborn uh, uh, animal, meaning it's pretty much fully developed. It just didn't get air in its lungs, uh, basically suffocated uh, on the way out. Sometimes this struggle associated with becoming a hypoxic is a good thing. It actually induces stronger contractions uh, by the female. But uh, if we have dystocia problems where it takes too long to get that fetus out, um, then uh, we could, that could lead to a stillborn fetus. In pigs, um, each piglet is uh, uh, born, and generally they're born from each side of the uterine horn. So one uterine... One side is piglet from the left side is born, then from the right, and, and vice versa. And uh, the uterus actually shortens as each placental unit and fetus is expelled. Um, but uh, what can happen is if there's a gap uh, between these placental units, and a lot of times this is maybe a, a fetus that's been developing up near the tip of the uterine horn, near the... The, the ovary side or the oviductal side, right? Um, sometimes it can take too long for those to get out, and they can. Uh, that's where you would oftentimes would find more of your stillborn uh, animals, is the ones that are farther up uh, the uterine So once they become hypoxic, they've got a limited amount of time uh, before they can they can uh, exit the system. Okay. So today, when you uh, go through your tracks, you're going to want to do a couple of things. So some of your tracks may be fairly big, so you may want to head over to a sink uh, where the fluid you can allow the fluid to drain out of the uh, placenta. But what you're going to do is try to start at the tip of the uterine horn and isolate the, the, uh, the choreolantois. Um, so you'll you'll want to start on the tip of the uterus, kind of strip up the placenta, cut off the end of the uterine horn, and then dissect away the uterus from the placenta. You want to be careful because if you break the placenta, right, there's going to be a lot of fluid uh, flowing on your tray. So that's why we may want to be close to a sink when we do this. Um, then you isolate each view, each of those different sacs. So first is going to be essentially the Coriolantois. Um, and then you can uh, remove that layer and expose the amnion, and then remove that layer to expose the fetus. There's a couple things we want to measure uh, today uh, in regard to the fetus. We want to know the crown rump length. So that is the length from the crown of the head. Remember the fetus, the chin is tucked into the body in uh, the fetal position. Um, so we can't use the end of the nose as a marker. We use the crown of the head. So we want to measure the crown to rump length of your fetus. Now there are, have been scientists who've gone out to a lot of uh, uh, 
slaughter plants or abattoirs. They've got a bunch of pregnant uh, reproductive tracts from cows. And they've established a, a system or tables where they can match a certain crown rump length with um, the stage of gestation uh, uh, in cows. And obviously, that can be breed specific. Um, but uh, they have fairly accurate tables uh, by measuring crown rump length. Now, in a litter-bearing species, those wouldn't be viable because the, the size of the fetus really depends on how many uh, fetuses are developing within the uterus or basically what is the litter size of, of the animal. So that could vary considerably. But in the cow, uh, we're not going to really be worried about that. Um, so we can utilize the crown rump length to determine, help determine stage of gestation as well. And that's something to remember when you're performing rectal palpation. If you could somehow uh, feel the fetus, feel its head, or feel the length of the fetus and match it up with the length of your hand, you might get some idea of, of crown rump length, and that might help you a little bit when you're uh, trying to stage, to predict the stage of gestation that that, that pregnant animal might be at. The other thing we want to do is uh, weigh the fetus and then get uh, the sex of the fetus. Is it male or female? And then once that's done, you may want to do some dissecting of the fetus to look to see if the bones are ossified. Uh, you might want to take a look at the internal organs in the fetus. Typically, you see a large red area, so the liver is a big proportion of the body weight of, of fetuses during uh, gestation. So those are some other things that uh, uh, you may want to look at as, as we go along. And then we'll uh, maybe be able to compare some of the fetuses amongst uh, the different laboratory groups uh, before we're done. And then the other aspect today that we're going to perform, or in lab this week that we're going to perform, is rectal palpation uh, for pregnancy. And so I wanted to talk just a little bit about that um, when we're palpating for pregnancy. Um, previously, we've really um, inserted our hands um, not that far into the rectum. Well, when we're detecting for pregnancy, um, we're probably going to have to go further in um, to be able to, to feel the things that we need to feel. So maybe around the, the length of your elbow. And so when people do a lot of preg checking, um, that's why their arms get really sore because the, uh, their arms are uh, mostly in, inside the, the rectum of the cow. And what are we going to look for? Well, um, the reason we have to go in further is because as the fetus develops, the placenta develops, it puts weight on the female reproductive tract. And that's going to pull uh, the cervix uh, inward um, and then over the pelvic lip. So one, one of the first indicators we can look for is do, if we find the rim of the pelvis and feel over that, and that's where we find the cervix, and that's pretty good indicator that that uh, female is pregnant. If we can find the, the uh, placenta and fetus and feel it, they oftentimes say it feels like a bag of walnuts. And why is that? Well, that's because we have all these uh, the cotyledons around. And we also have the uh, membranes present there around the fetus, and that's going to give that appearance of, or that feeling of a, a bag of walnuts. 
And that would be something we would test for uh, uh, early on. The other thing um, we could do is potentially field a fetus. If the pregnancy is, is uh, advanced enough, then we could actually feel the head of the fetus or maybe feel the, the crown rump length of the, of the fetus, right? Feel distinctive features of the, the head of the fetus. And um, what you'll be able to do kind of is what I jokingly call the bounce test. So you could kind of tap the, uh, if they're advanced enough, you can tap the fetus within the, the uh, placental sacs and it will bounce back on, on your hand. Um, so remember, the fetus is floating in, in, inside this uh, little uh, sac area. If we wanted to be very good pregnancy checkers, right, we, we'd wait until they're further along in gestation. Right? We could become 100% effective if we waited longer. But by waiting longer, um, that could be uh, more stressful on the cow and potentially cause problems with the pregnancy. But more importantly, we want to determine if the cow is pregnant or not early on so that we're not feeding a cow that's, that's unproductive, right? Uh, we're either going to rebreed her, keep her around to rebreed, or, or cull that cow from, from the herd. But we, we want productive cows, we want to feed productive cows just to make our system more economical and more uh, uh, productive as well. And with that, uh, we'll stop right there and we'll see you in lab this week.